Welcome to the 47th episode of the Not Done Podcast. How are you doing, Shimon? I'm doing well. How are you doing, you man? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for asking. As you can tell, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a different tone for this episode. This is actually going to be the first episode of a new podcast called A Muslim Life. Our first guest is Brother Khaled Ali Mustafa, founder of the IT project management WiseEye, author of two books, Character is Fate and The Frolic's Charisma. He's an avid technologist and an avid educator, and he's going to share his journey with us. Allahu Akbar! Allahu Akbar! Allahu Akbar! Allahu Akbar! Ashhadu Peace. My name is Khalid Ali Mustafa. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Originally, my name was Haywood. My mother was Gladys Haywood. And my father, I didn't know, I never met. What I enjoyed as a youth was sports, was really being active, engaged. I grew up on uh, Faston Street, um, late 60s. Faston Street, Dorchester, at the time, it was considered on the border of um, Dorchester and Roxbury. I think now they, they just say it's Dorchester. Very violent. I mean, Faston Street itself was so violent, people would avoid coming down it, and it had a more infamous reputation than even the projects that surrounded it. So I, I, I always look at it that I was, I was born into the leadership of violence. Family members were part of the leadership who was at the forefront of the, of the, of the reputation of it being very violent. And so so I, was, I was born into that. One of the, the, the closest friends of my brother that um, had equal, I say equal kind of reputation, if, uh, some cases even more. He really, even when he went in and did, and, and did his time, you know, he just ruled. He ruled in there too, you know, so. So what can you tell me about your parents? So my parents, my mother, I think that she was young, but she just really tried to maintain the family. She did work a lot, or from our perspective, my perspective as a youth, she was out working. She was gone most of the time. And I was basically raised by my aunt. Mm -hmm. uh, and we actually lived in our um, aunt's home that her her husband owned. We grew up, that was kind of like the environment. So we was like the second class group of people in the home. And you said that your, your, your uncle had a huge presence in your life. Was that your aunt's husband? Yes. Okay. He okay. was um, a huge, I mean, he was almost like also my protector um, because of the fact that for some reason, I was named after him, his first name. I was named after, and his own biological son was not named after him. So 
there was always this um, undercurrent of tension. So he was he was always there and supported me until he passed away when I was around ten years old. So up until the age of ten, he was your father figure. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, so talk to me about like uh, you know growing up in that area. What was it like? <clears throat> I was really young, and my mother gave me money to go to the store. I guess I'm gonna say maybe seven, eight, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to um, go to the store, and the older group of kids stopped me and said that I had, you know, I had to pay a toll to step off my property. And uh, so I went back in the house crying, oh, they want And my mother's like, listen, I gave you the money to go to the store to get A. Don't come back in here unless you got A. <laughs> Period. That's it. End the conversation. That's how she was. She was. So I went back out there. I gave I gave them the money, and I went to the store, and I stole the items that I needed, and I came back and gave her the items. So at seven, seven. So seven, yeah. So the street people got what they got. My mother got what she wanted. Everybody seemed to be happy, you know. Hmm. And then of course, my mind, you know, my mind started thinking. So wait a minute, you know. I can get this stuff for free. Now I gotta just figure out how to keep the money. <laughs> and that's where everything changed. Because of the fact that my family was already in the leadership of the violence, once I acted out a little, they stepped back and said, oh, he's just like his brother Luke. And I didn't know what they really meant. But just like that, just like a little bit of hesitancy changed everything. you know. And then I just really became I guess that's why my propensity to violence really started escalating because I realized that every time I showed this kind of intense violence, everybody would back off and leave me alone, no matter how old they were. Violence and escalated. If if you step on my shoe, I try to rip your arm off. But that's more of a survival technique for the yes. hood. I, I, I thought I thought myself it was essential, um, and, and after pe- people would back off, then I had no issues. Really, had no issues. And it wasn't like I was a bully. I wasn't really going around bullying people and stuff like that. It was really about backing people up off of me. You know, that's really, and it worked. So I didn't know any other way. Like, I didn't know anything about, like, negotiating and all that. That call came later. It's just that, you know, people assault you. You just escalate it, and that was hmm. it. Do you know anything about your dad? That Like, do you have any part of his temperament, maybe? Is there anything anyone told you about him? Nope. The only only thing I know is the name that was on my birth certificate, and that wasn't really absolutely validated. Mm. But as far as I know, I've never, ever met him. Nobody ever really talked about him. The only thing that was ever said was that he was a military person and that he had a wife on every dock. And that's because I never had any other information or anything else was ever said about him, so... As a matter of fact, as, as, a, as a kid, as part of the violence, I would say that, you know, I killed my father. So describe uh, your young adulthood, your, your teens. Well, you, you understand, around when you, when you start talking about the, um, like the early 70s, around there, going into the mid-70s, that's when the riots took place, too. Again, it's emphasis of violence. That's when the violence in the, at all the stores that was up there on Blue Hill Ave and the businesses, 
you know, after the, I think it was like three riots within that period between the 60s and the 70s. You mean after Malcolm X was killed? Like Malcolm X was one of them, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Malcolm was killed. Oh, right, but there was like three violence. Martin, sorry. Right, Martin, there was like three riots that took place. To, and finally, the business owners just really, most of them, like 99%, just gave up. Yeah. And because the businesses were owned by Jews, they moved out and they just left it there. Everything went barren. Mm. Like, there was like, there's nothing but lots and lots of weeds, I remember that in the 80s. Lots, right, lots. Yeah. And that wasn't until later on, when it, whereas it was actually Mayor Menino, it was like, you know, clean it or lean it came out. And that was actually um, motivated by, um, uh, what's that organization's name? Uh, it was an organization that was really behind it. Um, matter of fact, which Barrows used to work for them. He's now running for mayor. Um, <clears throat> but I just can't remember name right now. But they was really behind that whole movement of trying to revitalize the neighborhood. And that's where the whole thing was clean it or lean it. So then they <clears throat> so then that's when finally the Jews started selling it off or letting it go, um, or or starting to clean clean it up and, and, the, and the rebuilding um started. So you can understand the kind of devastation that really took place um in the neighborhood. So growing up around all of these abandoned stores and businesses and and they'll they'll just have apartment buildings. I'm sure they probably weren't even in the best order. Uh, different houses like I grew up I, I grew up in Roxbury I remember it in the 80s in the 80s there was just a lot of dilapidated crap everywhere right, cause, yes. and you're saying all of that is left over from the 60s originally that's what like it's from like the 70s right the 70s yeah, when, 70s, when the riots when the riots took place yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the Jews now they, had, they they wrote a book about that of how the um, the realtors were, were blaming blacks for doing things to the Jewish businesses you know even though it wasn't, you know, to really just try to make money. So there's a whole lot of history that went behind um, all that. But yes, that was that whole transition. Everything happened around there. Yeah, I, I moved to Boston in '84, and we visited in '82 from the Caribbean, and it was a stark contrast from being a small boy in the Caribbean in the islands, Barbados, to being here in the middle of the crack wars. It was just violence. I, I'm pretty sure I got in a fight. My first couple of days in America, because hmm. they heard my accent. And they're like, you're not from here. And it was the same thing. They hit me, and I, I just fought back. If they knew you could fight, they would leave you alone. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the whole thing about bullies. They try to prey on the weak, you know. Hmm. And that really became really, uh, for me, I always was like really um, a defender of the weak. So, so if you if you were in in your let's say early teens, if you saw someone was um, being taken advantage of, you'd try to step in to disallow not, that. Not that straightforward, because of course some people cause things on their own self in a very overt way. So it, it wasn't that carefree, you know, because you still you know. You, you have you have a certain sense about yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and you you're not trying to drown, helping someone that wants to drown. Yeah. Uh, that, so wasn't wasn't that kind of that? So kind describe of, the person who you would help. If if I if I found some if I seen someone that like for example they really wasn't into the street life, 
And, and they were just really trying to go get their education or do their thing, and, and, and bullies would try to bully them. Then I would intervene mm-hmm. like that. So it, I would have to know something about the person mm-hmm. to know that they're not causing it on themselves. Yeah. And, and, then, and then I would intervene like that. And that's, that's going to come into play as I go further on. You're going you're gonna to see that theme and, and, and a lot of different things that happen um, in my life. So let's um let's let's talk about young adulthood. So yeah. what happened was, of course, um, after my uncle passed away, a lot of stuff came to the surface. How old were you when he passed away? Around ten years old. Okay, around ten years old, and then that's when I, <clears throat> around that time, was when I first started sneaking out. I used to go downstairs to the basement and sneak out the basement door. I actually learned that from my cousin. Um, that's what he used to do. I, I follow. I, I seen what he did. Oh, and nobody seemed to ever realize it. Just go on the basement, leave the basement door unlocked, go out, hang out all night, come back in the basement door, come back in, and and then of course there wasn't really no focus on the children because of the, the now the you know the, the, the father figure was gone. So there was a lot of chaos among the adults. So I was easily ignored. Yeah. Uh, so, but at the same time, what happened was, after a while, the, the controversy came so much that my mother finally moved out of the house, and we ended up in the, um, the projects. At that time, was called, I think it's still called, the Academy Homes. It really didn't sit well with people because I moved in there, wasn't born there, I moved in there, and again, I was like immediately, I guess you could say respected, right? So that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Like I grew up here, who who he think he is? He's this new guy coming in. Come in, and who who he think he is, and all that kind of. And tell tell us about the people you used to hang with, like your friends. Friends, what's that? Uh, You didn't have friends. No, I I had associates, but Hmm. I, for the most part, I really by myself I had one person I would say that yeah, I guess we could say we're friends um, but mainly again I really um, aligned with my brother and I used to hang out a lot with my brother um, yeah. so I really didn't have a lot of I didn't have any really friends so I think it's important to prefaces by saying that that's the reason I talked about how I was um, looked at when I, I, I moved there. But I, I do want, I have to step back just a little bit because I was having so much problems that my mother put me into a parochial school. It was a school that was run by nuns and we had to go to confession, but it was a parochial school, which I don't I was a kid. Got it. Okay. You know, all I know is there was nuns in the classroom, and we had to go do a confession, and I had nothing to confess about, so I just make up stuff. <laughs> because yeah. I, for me, I didn't have, I didn't have that sense like I was doing, like I was like doing something wrong. I needed to confess. You know, I was just, I was a kid. I lived in my life. I didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. So, in the parochial school, I met this other guy. Me and him really clicked off, and I, and it was, so when I, when my parents. My, my, my parent, really. When we moved over to the Academy Homes, it was over in the area that he was in. So that really helped with, you know, me being able to almost like move from one area of leadership to another area of leadership. 
But so anyhow, so I, I, I went there and I, I met him. And then, of course, when we moved over there, I found out I was over there. So that, so there was just really just um, this dislike for me. And then those who were older, because I typically ended up running because of that, running with people that were like 10 years my senior. That became that my, it has been my norm basically until today. Yeah. <laughs> now you are the senior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, that's how it really was. So, so there was this thing that those who knew wouldn't do anything. So they would go to the younger groups of kids and say, hey, you can earn your street credibility if you derail this guy here. Mm. So that night was just one incident of, of multiple times of these types of uh, conflicts. But because they were never, because they were young, I, I consider, even though they was around my age, I still consider them young, because like I said, I hung with those that was like 10 years my senior. I would just blow it off mostly. I would just, I would just blow it off. But this particular Saturday night. What was the date exactly, do you know? I think it was November 13th, 1976. I was on my way home on a Saturday night. And that's really, I really wanted, I didn't feel like doing the street life. And that was really because I had just had a hernia operation. So I really mm. wasn't feeling Myself. Other than that, there would have been no reason for me to be home that early on a Saturday night hmm. or heading home that early. How old were you at this time? Um, 18. 18, okay. So I was um, on my way home. Uh, I always believed it was 17, but the records keep saying 18, but so I'm just going to 18. Okay. So I was on my way home and I was just, again, mind my business, heading home. And they was on the porch. Who's they? Group, group of kids. Mm-hmm. Some, some of the, I call them all kids, but some of them was actually older, and they was some of the younger, they was all on there. And I was walking by, doing my usual thing, you know, just cruising the street with my eyes closed, just minding my own business, yeah. you know. Then I heard this bottle crash at my feet and I opened up and looked up, and they was over there laughing and doing all that kind of stuff. So I says, well, if I don't do something, all this doing is gonna, it's gonna escalate. So they're gonna say, whoa, he let us get away with that, then let's just, just do something even more. Yeah. So I had to really like confront them. So in my mind that night, I was like, I will confront them, they would back down as usual, and I would just go on home, and everything would just be everything. Yeah. That's that's really what was on my mind. Yeah. So I waited, and um, I confronted them, and lo and behold, lo and behold, this lo and behold, just one. Um, youth were really bent on getting their reputation. Hmm. So he just went off. He just went off swearing and saying all kind of stuff. And I didn't even think about it, you know. Again, you, we have that propensity to violence. You don't think about violence. It's just That's done. what you do. It's just yeah. done. Yeah. And before I knew it, boom, I stabbed him. Stabbed him one time. Um, I think I think it went through his his stomach up to his heart, I think that's what happened. Uh, 
And then after I did that, of course, the rest of them, they all got quiet and ran off. And then I just walked down the street. I, I dropped a knife down into the sewer and I went home, hmm. you know, which was my original intention anyhow to go home. Not that long after that, the police showed up and I got arrested. Was it uh, days? Was it? Hours, what, may, maybe hours. Same maybe. night? Same night. Wow. So that was my first lesson, my real lesson about street code, right? Because, you know, I, in my mind, I'm thinking that, you know, we got, we got an issue. We're going to deal with this on the street. I wasn't thinking that they were going to all run to the police. and it, it didn't even cross my mind. Yeah. You know, and that's when I realized, like, this, this, all, this whole life, this whole thing is just not real just not real mm. you know um, so I learned that lesson at that age because within hours they came and they arrested me and then it started the journey started um, now did the young man survive no no, no. I'm just clarifying the picture well, gotta paint the picture yeah I, I thought I painted it through his stomach punctured his heart and knife was long enough to go to his stomach and punch his heart. The okay. chance of survival is low. Okay. Very low. Yeah. But that's, again, because I was just so intense on violence. I mean, I knew violence. So you, you were well. born into a violent family in a violent area at a violent time. Yes. And this is just what it was. Just, it's just, it's just back what it was. Back in the 70s in yeah. Roxbury. So in retrospect, yeah. um, I didn't think about the time. I had had this issue in Girls High, I think they call it Roxbury High now, but they had made Girls High co-ed. And I went to Girls High the first year it was turned co-ed. So I would think I was like one of maybe 20 males in the whole school. Girls High, which is Roxbury High now. And I was the only one, the only male that sat at the seniors table. Because back then, the women ruled. And they actually had a group of the Vine Street Gang was a woman gang. They were serious. They didn't play around. The Vine Street Gang? Yeah, that's the they, they was called the Vine Street Gang. It was all wow. females. They were serious. They didn't play. Wow. Uh, so I was, but because of my family, my cousins, you know, I was the only male that sat at that senior's table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the gang members and the leaders of the school had a bathroom that was just theirs. Nobody else went into this bathroom unless you was part of that clique. And I hang, hung out in that bathroom. Um, so what happened was, I got kicked out of that school. They, they got me out of there real quick. And I, that's how I went to end up going to Boston Trade. But I used to leave Boston Trade and go back into that school. And they was like, how you getting this school? They couldn't figure out how I was getting in this school. They would, they'd be looking for me. And of course, I'd be in this woman's bathroom on the second floor that only a few people went in. So they could never figure out how I was getting in the school, where I was hiding, and until they found me. So anyhow, in all that whole process, I picked up these juvenile cases, and I went to this program that was called CG, CTG. Don't ask me what it meant today, I don't know. But it was a youth program that I, I went in. And again, I really wasn't a troublemaker. And, and now you're talking about people or kids that got in trouble. So basically, they all knew me. So I was able to go to this program and had no problems. Right? So I got to know the staff pretty well. And I, I, I mentioned that because 
when I got into this issue, they actually came to my aid. It was really there, I think, and they really prevented any real injustice from happening to me because they knew that these individuals were actively involved in trying to support me. So in that, in, in that sense, you know, I didn't experience a lot of the kind of injustices that people get from like the cops and that, or, or the courts and stuff like that because they were there. And, and really what they were trying to do is really trying to prevent me from following the usual path, but it created a, a very different path. So, <clears throat> so what they try to do is they came up with a plan to have me evaluated versus going as a young person versus going straight to prison have me evaluated. So after spending time and doing time and doing doing all the different things that went on in Child Street Jail, and that was quite an experience back then before they closed it down. Oh, Charles Street Jail. It's like a hotel now, right? It is a hotel. Yeah. A luxury hotel. I know. That's wild. So I went through a lot of different things there because, you know, they, you know, they were, they, um, I guess they, like, I guess it was like their hole. They, they, they put me in all the areas and all that. At, at first, I think they were trying to, again, protect me. Mm-hmm. So they was like putting me aside, you know, because I had these people supporting me. They were putting me aside. And actually, I had this counselor and I was like, why am I over here? And they was like, well, so-and-so and so-and-so. I was like, oh, listen, I you know, I'm, I'm facing a life sentence. I said, I can't do no life sentence like this. You know, I, I need, I need to, I need to be able to interact with the people. Hmm. So, if you, if you want to petition to that, you could do that. And I did. I petitioned to do that, and I did that. Uh, but anyhow, part of that evaluation, they actually sent me to um, Bridgewater State Hospital for evaluation, a mental institution. Because I had this, such a strong propensity to violence, what they was looking to see was I, what they called criminally insane. Hmm. You know, that's, that's how they defined it back then when I was talking to the, the doctor. So I went there for this evaluation, and then what they did was they actually um, wanted to call in a specialist. And so then they actually kept me there longer than the original evaluation. So I actually, they actually moved me into the population of the Bridgewater State Hospital mm-hmm. while I'm waiting for this person to come, for this specialist to come to evaluate me. A lot of different things happened. One of the major things that happened was there was this other um, brother that I knew from the street. So we had this whole unit, and they had this one bathroom. We had to um, one shower room, big shower room, and we had to go into the shower room. Um, he would um, um, sexually molest the white boys there. Wow! So I just went to him. I said, "Listen, man, I, I really don't care what you do. It's not my issue. I, when I'm taking a shower, it just can't happen, man. That's it, you know." Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's. Yeah, that's right. what you got to do. So he's like, "Okay, so you you be one, you be the first one in there, and then once you come out, I do my thing. That's cool with me, you know." Wow. So of course, just, it's just a shocking conversation to have. But anyway, go ahead. I mean, what other conversation we're going to have with them? That's what it has to be, though. I'm just right. saying that's what it's going to be because I'm not, you know. 
Right. Yeah. I, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not trying to stop you to do whatever you're doing. You know. Yeah. But what happened was, of course, the white boys they realized that I'll go in. He went. He went and go in until I came out. Mm. So what happened was, when I go, I'd be the first one. I go in. They'd be like twenty or thirty of them all trying to be there taking a shower together. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny. It's not funny. But, but it's just funny. It know. is funny. Yeah, you know, they were just all trying to get in and get their shower so I leave, they can leave, right? The people running this institution have to know this is going on. And they're permitting it. They're permitting it because there's no way they could not. Yeah. And that's what I know as a fact. Yeah. So I, I, I know that as a fact. So I would I, I I wasn't trying to stop him because I knew that look at the whole whole system of everything. I was just really worried about me and what was right for me. Yeah. So that's how that went and of course um, the specialist came in they, they did the evaluation and he was like listen man this this guy here is so balanced he would do well in like one of those um, release programs you know like and of course the judge like is, is, is this doctor crazy like this guy's facing a murder a murder sentence what are you talking about he, he could do some community program right yeah but so that's how and that's documented. It's in, in the document what their findings was and all that kind of stuff. So then, so that's where I went after. I, so that meant that meant that I was in enough correct frame of mind to do time. So they packed my stuff up and back then I think they I don't, I don't know, I think they call it Cedar Junction today. Back then it was Walpole. Yeah. So my thought, you know, of course you hear all different stories about Walpole. So I was like, so we was on the bus. You know, not really. I couldn't. There wasn't a bus, like, like the paddy wagon, whatever they used to call them things. And I was like, "Listen, it's gonna be really easy for me." I says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get me a weapon, and the first person that approached me, I'm gonna make an example out of that person." Mm. And so everybody's gonna be very clear where I stand. So that's what that was what my anticipation was. And I don't. Again, I don't know. I, I think again. I keep thinking that what was, what was protecting me, to some extent, was those individuals that was part of the legal system in the CGG program was always there, always there, all the way up. I, because I, certain things just cannot be explained. How old were you when you first stepped foot in the Walpole? I guess I had to be eighteen. No, no, maybe nineteen. So how I, I, spent, I spent time in, 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 in through that whole process in, in, in Child Street, yeah, and then uh, maybe a couple of months in there. So maybe it's about maybe a year later. I would say. Uh, okay. I don't know. Like I really didn't keep track of. Last thing you want to do when you're doing time is keep track of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't I didn't do that. I really didn't keep track of time. Like a lot of the dates and stuff that I have in my mind was things I looked up after the fact because when people kept asking me what date was that, I'm like, I have no idea. Well, yeah. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna explain some of that too. So um, so from there, and at that time, again, it's, there was this shift from prisons just being uh, punishment, but being uh, rehabilitative, right? It was, a, it was at that era of rehabilitation over punishment, right? So they had created this this um, evaluation unit we used to call the submarines. So I went to Walpole. I never got in conflict with anybody. 
because I guess I really never was put in that position because what they did was they went from there and they with a walpole they took me to this submarine unit to be determined what would be the best institution for me to be in me good because i never i wasn't a troublemaker so it wasn't really no for their perspective wasn't no need for me to be in a maximum security level five prison like walpole and they and in my observation they said well, you know he definitely handled himself around adults they sent me to norfolk and Norfolk is the kind of like the comparable to Walpole, to Conquit, but I think it was a level three, I think that was, I forget. Uh, but it was for older, older generations. So I went there to Conquit, I mean to, from, to um, Norfolk. At that time, they had this thing where you, know, you had in, in um, Norfolk, you had these, um, they like to, they like to call them rooms instead of cells because they really had doors you could walk in and out and all that kind of stuff. But what happened was because it's still a prison, what people would do at night is what they would do is they would come in and they would close the door and they did what they call peg the door. They would peg the door. So in order for to run up on you, they would have to kind of like break the door down, right, to get mm -hmm. in. Okay. Me, I did not peg the door. I left my door wide open. So anybody want to come in, your choice. Come see me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty hard right there. Yeah. Even if I'm asleep, come see me. Come. But later on, that's what my kids used to say. They used to say, they, they couldn't understand. They were like, we try to like we try to sneak by you. You wake up and look at us in a second. Mm -hmm. So they had to learn, like, if you try to sneak, my, my senses <laughs> went no up. sneaking. Right. <laughs> so they said, but if, if we walk normal, you wouldn't, you wouldn't wake up. Wow. They couldn't understand, like, why, why are you like that? Like, we can't. If we try to sneak, you wake up in a second. I got but, Marine friends that are like that. Right. Who've been in cop. Yeah. 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 That's, that, a, that's, that's crazy that's, because that's like the same. Right. That's that street battle. That's, that's, yeah. Right. So Basically for, combat training. Right. So yeah. it, was, it, was, it was actually safer for me to have the door open because I, if they try to sneak, I could, I could sense them and hear them even before they get anywhere near my door. Hmm. So... But that's how it was. But then, of course, they had a, a very, a very strong impact on everybody that knew. They're like, man, this guy, you know, he, he, not, not only he don't peg the door, he don't even close it, right? <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, so anyhow. And then, of course, a lot of the most infamous people in the prison I knew anyhow. Mm -hmm. So, so all that just carries along with with everything. So, so that's how it went. So my my. My stay in Norfolk was pretty smooth until we was in the unit, and it was like I think it was around December or something. They was up there. They was all drunk, you know. They made their homebrew as they called it, and they was drunk. These white guys, and and this is this they made their what? I'm sorry. What they called it homebrew, where they take different things, like alcohol or something. Yeah, they could make it out of nutmeg, and they, I mean they had all man, they talk about creativity, man. Mm. So they was all up there high, and it was the holidays, and there was this African-American up there that they considered a punk. And what happened was, so they was messing with him, and there was another African-American. He got scared. He went into his cell, his rum cell. He pegged himself in there. So this other guy that I knew from the street, he came to try to help this guy, and the guy he tried to help ran hid. So left him by himself. 
So the white boys jumped on him. And then that same guy that ran in here, that he runs when, it, when, you know, when the whole thing, units opened up the next day, he runs downstairs and say, oh, so-and-so's been jumped. So there was a big riot broke out. So I got, um, I got put in the hole um, because of that, um, because of that riot. So in Charles Street, I ran across this other brother. Me and him got along really well. And he was known as Muhammad. He was a Muslim, well, of course, Muhammad. And one day, and we, of course, in population, we really didn't talk about that. We were, we were playing chess, we'd be playing cards, you know. It wasn't really no talk about religion. Um, but, you know, in prison at that time, Muslims had status, right? But I really wasn't thinking about none of that stuff because I didn't really need it. And me and him was tight. And one day, I walked him into his cell, and he was praying. I had no idea what he was doing, none, not at all. But I stood there and just observed him. I didn't say anything. I just observed him. He finished his prayer, and after he finished, he says, you're a Muslim. What are you talking about? He said, you didn't interrupt me. You didn't do... I like, listen, he said, like, you're a Muslim, whatever. Um, so my association with Muslims was there. When I went into the when I went into the hole, they have um, a Bible there. So what I petitioned them to do instead of um, the Bible, I asked them can I get a Quran. They said yes. So they, they shipped me up a Quran. Back then we had those big thick Qurans that were like super thick. Yeah. And of course I was in the hole long enough. I read it from cover to cover, annotations, footnotes, prefaces, everything, cover to cover. And I made a commitment to Allah that I was going to be Muslim. Based on my reading and understanding of it, I made that commitment. Nobody else really knew. You did that completely on your own? Completely on my own. As a matter of fact, now I'm in this leadership role as an inside man, whatever that is. And there were some other brothers that was taking a... the people from the community used to come out. And that's where actually I first met um, Imam Talib before he was the Imam. That's where I met Lawrence Muhammad, the women. I met them because they used to come up there. So anyhow, they was given some some other brothers that were new, not supposed to be like the Imam, other brothers, to Shahada. And I started taking it. And they like, why are you taking it? And, I, and that's when I first submitted that I had, I had never ever taken the Shahada. My commitment to Al-Islam came when I was in the hole, it was, it was just between me and Allah. Hmm. So I took the shahada then, at that time. Wow. So so tell people, what is it like in, in the hole? Because I've heard that many times in movies. What does that actually mean? So you are taken away from population and you're put in a unit, kind of like you say, where other people that, are, that have violated the rules are in. So you go from this population kind of like almost like you get additional benefits and freedoms to this other unit that is um, a smaller population what makes it so bad from my perspective it wasn't because not only did I have problems in the hole is they took me from the hole and put me in isolation so and very few people have experienced isolation 
So there's the hole, which is considered kind of like an isolation, but you're actually put with other inmates that are in the hole. And then there's this isolation, whereas you really have no contact with anyone. And in, in my mm-hmm. books, I, I mentioned about this, and I, I defined it as the blue room because they had a light bulb in there. There's no windows, no doors, no windows, anything like that. You can't really see the doors like all steel. Um, and they had this blue light that stayed on 24-7. Oh, man. So you're in this room, and so what happens is you lose all perception of time. So at first you try to like, you know, because, you know, you got breakfast food, you know, lunch food. Once, they, once that changes, whereas you, you, they're not giving you food based on what you know as breakfast, then you, you lose all perception of time. Mm-hmm. So what happens is I could probably go to sleep, wake up 10 minutes later, and think it's the next day. It's just, it's just no way for me to really know. So what I might have been counting as days might only have been hours. Who knows? But I know it's more than hours. I'm just giving you an example. That you just really, you just lose perception of time. And you have to. You have to give it up because there's no, there's no way to know anything because they're not giving you, you're not getting, you know, no more you're getting breakfast food, lunch food, or dinner food. You're getting food, whatever that might be. So it wasn't that kind of, you know, it was like in the morning you get your eggs and, you know, it wasn't like that. How, uh, what is, how is the room outfitted? Is it just a bare room? Or bare, it's a bare room. No bed or something to sleep if, on? If you, if you call a, a metal stru- structure, so there's like a, a, a metal toilet in there, like that. So it's a, just an empty room with a toilet. Yeah, it's like a toilet, yeah. How long are you in this place? Like I said, I really, I really don't know because after a while, that perception of time is just gone. Man, that's wild. You know, that's crazy. And, and, and you have to let go of it, and you really have to let go of it because you, there's no way to tell what's what. You just have to just be. For me, being in in, in the hole, you know, um, what everybody talk about, that was like a vacation to yeah. me. Uh-huh. And then, so, because once they brought me out of isolation and put me into the hole, you know, I was like, okay, vacation time. And, and then when they did that, they, they, they brought me up in front of this group of individuals. I didn't know who they were. And they was questioning me. So when we put you back in population, what are you going to do? And I said, listen, man, if nobody bother me, I'm not going to bother anybody. I said, but I, I, I will... I will protect myself. You know, that's it. Other than that, I, you don't bother me. He said, "Well, you got any? I've I, I got no animosity against anybody. Things happen." So, what happened was, there, on there, there was a, a superintendent of a, of a prison, and what he actually did was voted for me to end up going to his prison. So I went from the hole in Norfolk to the hole in his this new prison which was, uh, I think it was called Southeast Correctional Institute, something like that. That was unique because that was my first encounter with chemical toilet. And so I'm in this room, and far as I'm concerned, there's no toilet, right? So I'm just like, you know, you're used to like dealing with situations. After you come out of isolation, the whole, you know, you're used to, but after a while, I'm like, man, I'm banging on the door. So the guy finally comes, what's going on? I said, man, I, I, go, I can go to the bathroom. I, I can go to the bathroom. He says, well, that's the bathroom there. I was like, where's the bathroom? He said, that's the bathroom. 
And he shows me this. He opens it up, and I'm like, it's got some chemicals in it. He said, that's the, that's the bathroom. I was like, that's the bathroom? What are, when he says that, what, do you, what does he mean? some little to? plastic container that has some blue liquid in it that I supposed to. Like sit. a little bucket. Yeah, but it had it was shaped. I guess if we, we opened. I guess it was shaped to be like a toilet to sit on it. I don't know, but wow. but it was like really low to the ground. So I don't know. I guess because they had your legs out. I don't, I don't know. It was crazy. So the blue liquid, like on the bus, that blue liquid. Yeah, like an airplane. Yes. Okay. Right, but again, I had no perception of that as a kid coming. So anyhow, um, I couldn't use the bathroom. I couldn't. I started getting sick. Hmm. So then they. Took me now to the hospital. He said, what's going on? I can't use the bathroom. And he says, you got to use the bathroom. Man. I can't use the bathroom. They're like, but you got to use the bathroom. <laughs> like, I said, like, but I can't use the bathroom. So I guess they're like, okay, we got to do something. So they actually took me and put me in population. And in population, even though in the cells you still had the chemical toilet, but you actually came out to, for activities. And they had regular toilets, and everybody would rush to the regular when they let, when they let you out. Everybody would rush to the regular toilets and use the toilet there, mm. and so they wouldn't have to try to use them chemical toilets. Wow. Uh, so that's what I did. I went there. That's, that's I first used the bathroom, and I did the same thing when it came out. When I came out the cell, for my first stop was the bathroom. After that. I got back in the, in the population, and, and now I was at this new institution. And actually, that's when I first started working in the nursery and all that. So anyhow, I finally got um, a petition and got moved to this other institution, which was like a was called Shirley. Um, and they approved me, and I, I moved to Shirley. And this this institution was very different. It was the first time they took me to the institution. I stepped out of the the van, whatever they call it, they actually took my handcuffs off and drove away. I'm sitting there, standing on the sidewalk, and all you can see is just open ground. You can see cottages, and all I can see is just open ground, green, no fence, no nothing. I'm standing there like, this got to be a setup. Like, like, you're just going to just like, let me go, unhandcuff me, and drive away, and just leave me standing here in the middle of open ground, no. So finally, <laughs> finally one of the guards come out. It's like, are, are you gonna come in? Uh, are you asking if I gonna come in? <laughs> like, like, like this, this was weird. It, it was, it was, it was really very different. And it was, it was read by this person, um, the superintendent called Galati. And matter of fact, the gangsters. Part of their duty that they had, they had their own vehicles. There was all their own vehicles to do different type of work. The, the gangsters had a Cadillac that they drove around and to do their work. <laughs> Cadillac on this Shirley, and they had other vehicles that you know you, you, you drove around and to go do different kind of work. You actually had vehicles to do this a very different thing. And Galati just had this disposition. He says, "If you tell me the truth, I'll support you." And I watched him and observed him, and he surely was. He would go to back even against his own gods as long as you were honest with him. Mm-hmm. That was why I think actually running into that type of integrity 
was very my, my first experience of running into that level of integrity that really spoke to me because for me I really was that kind of a person and it really spoke to me so I did really well in Shirley um, and that's where I first started getting parole, uh, what they call furloughs whereas I would get furloughed to go out and go back into the community and all that kind of stuff um, and that's where because of that interacting out in the community that's where I, 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 I married and I married uh, one of my um, childhood friends from Face the Street before I moved from Face the Street. And this is while you were still in prison? Yes, at Shirley. Uh, and when I first went there to Shirley, there was a conflict between uh, the Nation of Islam and those who were following uh, War of D. Muhammad. And they, they was at odds with each other. Matter of fact, physical odds. And again, along with my personality type um, and, and knowing people, there was this one guy, I, I'll never forget my brother, my brother Burston, Burston. He was like all muscle. Entertainment for him was laying out on concrete with no shirt in 90 degree weather, right? <laughs> That's entertainment? Yes, nobody That's, messed with, nobody yeah. messed with Burston. Yeah. So me and him, me and Burston, we just started talking because he was part of the Nation of Islam and I was part of Muslims. I said, listen, man, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta squash this, right? So me and him, like I ain't supposed to be over that side, but none of the guards messing me. We we, we stay over there, over there talking all the time until we built up this plan, you could say, of how we was gonna bring it all together. And my main thing with him was like, let's be real, man. You know, let's let's be real about. It. I, I I know the preaching, I know what they say and all that, but let's be real. And I say that because I want to backtrack a little bit. Like you said, I, I grew up on Faison Street, which was a couple of streets down from Interville Street. And at 35 Industry Street, that was the Nation of Islam. My uncle was a plumber. So he did a lot of plumbing work for members and leadership within the Nation of Islam. Right? So I had inside information about certain people because I wasn't coming into their coming into their home because I was a Muslim. I was just coming in their home because my uncle did plumbing and I did plumbing and I got to observe their lifestyle. And any if anybody knows there was a lot of stuff going on under the Nation of Islam. A, a lot of stuff that was yeah. going on. So I used that insight and and talked to them since I, I understand what the preaching says. I understand it, but me and you both know A, me and you both know B. And we agreed on that, and then we agreed on our approach. And then, of course, once he accepted me as being his religious leader, Imam, uh, now it's the first time I became a, a religious leader inside of the prison, then that just squashed everything. You know? So you're able to bring the two factions together. Yes. Once, so once I was at Shirley and uh, successfully went through Shirley, then I petitioned um, to be a cadre in Boston pre-release. And at that time, Abu was the superintendent of Abdul Kalak, Nubian Notions. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was the oldest son um, of, of Abdul Kalak's. Um, he was a superintendent of Boston State pre-release. So I petitioned to be a cadre there. Uh, which was like a privileged position, 
that you go there, you're not on pre-release, but you do a function there. We we cleaned up and did cleaning and um, served food, served food. Ultimately, I got to the position where I was, I manned the vending machines. So money is put in the machines, I'll take the money out, count it, and restock the machines and get the money to the to the accountant and stuff like that. So I earned that kind of premise. So I, I, I was there um, in the pre-release with Abu um, and, and, and um, that whole process happened. And then from there, because uh, I actually got married while I was in Shirley um, on um, a furlough. And I think it was like the early 80s. So time I got, time I got to the pre-release as a cadre, I was already married um, and was a childhood friend, so she wasn't a Muslim. Um, so, and uh, in that process, I think, I think we were married like 17 years or more, something like that. Um, and yeah. this is a childhood sweetheart you, you knew from, from the street you used to live on. I wouldn't say sweetheart. Well, that's, that's <laughs> so, yeah, but somebody I knew from the street. Somebody who you just knew. Yeah, yeah. That we, we was close. We, yeah. was, we was close. As a matter of fact, I used to like hang out on her porch, you know. But, you know, it's another story. Anyhow, so I'm trying to just keep everything aligned. A lot of stuff happened, but so yeah, so we end up, and at that time, she really, she actually, she already had three children, um, and she went through one thing, and then we just cooked together, and then um, we end up having three children together. So she has six. So I, I would, I just claimed her children because they was young. I claimed her children as mine, and I claimed my biological children. So at that time, I said I was. I had six children, and then my second marriage I had two sons, and I, I, I tell everybody I have eight children, because hmm. um, that's how I looked at. I looked at you know once I made that marriage, I made that commitment, and still I try to be there for them where I can, when I can, even though technically I only have three biological children, but hmm. I still say I have eight children because of that, because of marriage. Uh, so. You might people you might hear me as you say you got eight children, but that's the reason why. Okay. Um, so that's how that went, and everything, you know, for for that first marriage, then the, then the pre-release, and then, um, I, I think it was parole. Yeah, I think it was finally parole because once I got parole, now I was out, and that changed the dynamic of relationships that I didn't really understand. And that is, what happened was, when you're inside, the woman knows where you're at 24-7. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you know, you're not doing anything that she don't know, right? You're not talking to anybody she don't know, because if somebody comes to visit you, it's on the, it's on the record, so she, when she goes inside it, she can see. If anybody's coming, like, you're, you're in total submission, you might say. <laughs> right? So you're in, uh, but then what happened is once I got out, now things started kicking in I had no clue about. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm driving and a woman's crossing the street with her children and I stop let her by, she'll go, you know her? No wow. who? Like, no who? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? No who? You know, why did you let her go by? Like, what do you mean? Why the baby by? Is a woman trying to carry three babies across the street? What do you mean? Why did I let her go by? Wow. <laughs> like, 
it, it, this is the stuff that started. It, it just t- deteriorated. It, it, it deteriorated bad, and it actually got to a point where she actually um, went because you know you got the pro office. She went to the pro office and made up a story, and of course they they immediately ate it up. Oh my god! And it took me back behind the wall like that, you know. And you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't try to argue with it because I knew they had already made up their mind. So I didn't try to tell my story. I didn't do anything. Um, and then when they had me back there, you have a hearing, and that hearing determines if you if you did really violate or or did you not violate. So they came to me and says, "Oh, your wife wants to come up to the hearing. What do you say?" I'm like, "Why not?" They're like, what do you mean, why not? But she's the one that put you up here. Like, why would you let her come speak? Why not? Like, what, what, what to me, I'm like, what, what worse can happen, right? Hmm. It's an interesting way. Yeah. Like, me, I'm like, what worse can happen? So, so that shocked them because they was like, that's, that's never been done. Usually, you, you, last person you want there to testify is the person who sent you there, right? Yeah. And I, I'm telling you, I had no clue what she was going to say. But she got there and she switched the whole story around. And said, no, he never touched me, he never did this, blah, blah, blah. And they had her go into the office, she had to sign an affidavit, it never happened and all that kind of stuff. So they, now they were stuck because now they're sitting there and they got her testimony, her testimony saying, I didn't do nothing. They had let me go. <laughs> and her, her position was, this is the kind of control I have on you. What are you going to do? Oh, so, so that was a flex move on her part. Right. Mm-hmm. And I told her like this. This, this is what Al-Islam came in. I says, you know, uh, wholesale death is better than oppression. And if you think that I'm going to willingly let you oppress me, you, you, you made the wrong decision. I'd rather stay in prison. That is amazing. And so what happened was I came out. At that time, my sister let me move in with her. I didn't move back into the home. I actually sold her the house for a dollar. I sold her our home for a dollar. Your sister? No, my, my, my wife, as an agreement. Oh, okay. Dude, I, I, after that point, I'm like, all I want is get out of this marriage. Yeah. Like, what do you want? What do you want me to sign over? And matter of fact, she had this bill, and um, um, I paid the bill. I did that, and I, and I said, "All I want, you, I, I'll pay the bill. I'll sign the house over to you." And then we had a, um, at that time, we had a, um, a, a, a nonprofit because we was like at the forefront of doing a charter school. You know, that's when the first charter school education reform act. I said, "Listen, I'll sign all of it over to you. It's all yours. All you gotta do is just sign your name on this, on this, on this divorce." And why wouldn't she? She got everything, right? <laughs> so she signed it. And um, I just went on about my business, my homelessness self, and uh, went to rebuild it. So you started from just the dirt, basically. You started over from scratch, essentially. Yes. So you lost your house. You're basically homeless. You just said that. So you were homeless. And that's when I started staying. At that time before, the mall house was next door to, you know. It used to be a, yeah. So I started. I started, I was staying there. I was staying, and I, I think I stayed there like four years, mm. you know, because I just had, because because of all that, 
I lost a job that I had, you know. Um, what, what job did you have? So that was I, when I got out, I had got a job at um, Goodwill as a sorter at night, part-time sorter, and I moved all the way up and I became the manager of the whole plant. So I became the manager of five departments within the plant from um, part-time sorter. But and because the, the years had passed, the, the new people really didn't know about, because I didn't lie in my, 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 my application, they didn't know, but they used that as an excuse because I was I got taken away. They used that as an excuse to terminate me. Hmm. So I, I lost I lost my job and and I sold my house for a dollar <laughs> to get out the get out of the marriage and uh and um that was it, you know, and um so I started staying next door and I, I was going through all these different programs, can't get a job and then Alright, let's pause it right there. We're gonna bring Brother Khaled back for part two. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of A Muslim Life. Please join us for episode two. Hopefully you guys will enjoy these podcasts moving forward. Assalamu alaikum. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن لا أشهد أن محمد رسول الله. We are here. We are strong.